Open your Bibles to John chapter 1. <clears throat> if you don't have a copy of the scriptures with you, uh, there's a copy under the seat in front of you, hopefully. Page 886 in that copy of the scriptures. John chapter 1. <clears throat> Let's pray. Father God, we come to you humbly asking you to speak to us today through your word and through your servant. I pray that even now you would quiet our hearts and minds that you would remove the distractions of the week, the distractions of the day, maybe even the distractions of right now, and that we would see Jesus today through your word and the power of your spirit. This I ask in his precious name. Amen. Be still and know that he is God. God is greater, more powerful, more awesome than our human brain can comprehend. We can be still all day and all night and meditate on who he is and still not fully understand the magnitude the enormity, the depth of who he is. He is infinite. We are finite. Our finite brains can't even process who he is. Because we're finite, we have limitations. Our imagination, our thoughts, our words are all limited to time and space. He's not limited to time and space. I can't conceive of being outside of time and space. I can't communicate being outside of time and space. All of our words that we use to communicate with each other or communicate about a subject are limited to time and space. The first word in the Bible is in. 
you look at John 1, 1, right in front of you, the first word is in. It's a time and space word. I went to Merriam-Webster's dictionary. There are 11 entries trying to define the two-letter word in. It says it's used as a function word, whatever that is. They didn't teach that when I was in school. Used as a function word to indicate inclusion, time and space word, location, time and space word, or position within limits. And so I'm stuck with the limitations of being a finite being with a finite vocabulary that is limited to space and time to talk about an infinite God who isn't limited to space and time. Look at John 1.1. In the beginning, time and space. What does beginning mean to someone who's outside of time and space? Was. It's a term of existence. It's a past tense. What does tense mean to someone who is outside of time and space? It may come as a surprise to some of you, but the Bible does not tell us everything there is to know about God. Now, I hope you don't hear that as heresy because I believe that the Bible is God-breathed. It is inspired. It's holy. It's inerrant. It is truth. But the Bible doesn't tell us everything that there is to know about God. We can't absorb. We can't contain. We can't process everything there is to know about God. Deuteronomy 29 says... The secret things belong to the Lord our God. But the things that are revealed to us belong to us and to our children forever. That we may do all the words of the law. Paul's trying to address this subject in Romans chapter 11. And finally he gets to the point you can almost hear him just throwing his hands up. And he says, oh the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable are his ways. That word inscrutable means impossible to understand or interpret. The Bible doesn't tell us everything about God. Here are a few of the things that the Bible tells us about God. I could make slide after slide after slide. And then to try to plumb the depths of each one of these. We could take each one of these every Sunday. And spend 45 minutes every Sunday. Talking about just one of these attributes. And we wouldn't even scratch the surface. Because of our finiteness. Because of our limitations. God's omniscient. He's all-knowing. He's all-seeing. Psalm 147 says, Great is our Lord and abundant in power. His understanding is beyond measure. 
He knows all things actual and possible. He knows everything that has happened. He knows everything that is happening. He knows everything that will happen. And he knows everything that could happen but doesn't happen. He knows all things actual and possible. His knowledge is extensive. He knows everything about everything. And his knowledge is intensive. He knows you intimately better than you know yourself. He's omnipresent. Earlier I said that he is not limited to space and time. He's separate from space and time. He invented space and time. He invented it for our benefit so that we could understand each other and so we could understand a little bit about him. But he is not limited to space and time. David said in Psalm 139, Where shall I go from your spirit? Or where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost part of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me and your right hand shall hold me. God's omnipotent. He's all-powerful. He is able to do whatever his perfect will desires. In fact, we can't separate those two things. He does whatever his perfect will desires. 58 times in the Bible, he and he alone is called almighty. Of course, when we think about God's power, very often we go back to creation and we think about creation. A few months ago, some of you may remember, Jack Sup did a wonderful job of talking about God and creation. And he just gave us some insight into some of the marvels of creation. Think about Genesis 1. God spoke the universe into existence. And God said, and God said, and God said, and God said, and it was. He spoke the universe into existence. Here's a fraction of that. It's estimated that there are 10 billion galaxies in the observable universe. Now, I don't know who counted them. I didn't, so I'm relying on... These guys who did. The stars, the number of stars in any given galaxy varies. But astronomers estimate that there's an average of 100 million stars in each galaxy. So if you multiply those things, you're talking about 1 billion trillion stars in the observable universe. What's beyond that? And God spoke it into existence. If you want to put away your telescope and take out your microscope, here's an article that was published in Medical News Today uh, about a year ago, written by a PhD, 
And here's what she says. Have you ever wondered how many cells your body's made up of? You're not alone. Scientists are still debating the exact number, which currently remains a conundrum. How long have we had the microscope? How long have we had the electron microscope? How long have we been studying the human body? How many cadavers have we cut apart? How many tissue samples have we looked at over the course of time, over the history of mankind? But we don't know. It's still a conundrum. And that's our bodies. That's our own body. The short answer is that the body of an average man contains about 30 to 40 trillion cells. I can't imagine a trillion. I don't think I even can see a trillion grains of sand if I stand on the beach and look both ways. I don't know. 30 to 40 trillion. The long answer is that scientists do not yet know the exact number. Plus, it depends on whether or not you include the bacteria that are present in and on our bodies. Just thought I'd leave that in there for fun. (laughs) Spoken into existence by God. Just spoke it. Each one of those individual cells, by the way, is a microscopic biological engine. And we don't even understand how that works. We don't fully understand what goes on inside of those trillions of cells that make up our body. Are you starting to get the point? God's different. He ain't no man. Don't paint him into that box. God is far greater than me. God is far greater than you. There is no one or no thing that compares to God. Isaiah 55, 8 and 9. For my thoughts, this is God talking. For my thoughts are not your thoughts. Neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, So are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts than your thoughts. And we've just talked about a couple of things. We could talk about his goodness. We could talk about his grace. We could talk about his mercy. We could talk about his love. And oh, by the way, all that he is, he is without measure. So even if we could talk about the breadth of everything that he is, if we could talk about the breadth of all of his attributes, we still couldn't plumb the depths. Incomprehensible. But to me, perhaps the most significant attribute of God particularly if you're talking about the difference between me and between God, is that he's holy. Again, I'm shackled by the limitations of human vocabulary. I'm shackled by time and space. 
I don't know holy. You don't know holy. From the time you were born, from the time I was born, we have lived in a world of sin and sorrow and woe and death and hurt. David said, I was brought forth in iniquity and in sin did my mother conceive me. We can't step out of unholiness to fully understand what holiness is. When Isaiah the prophet was called to his prophetic mission in Isaiah chapter 6, he was transported to the throne room of God. And as he walked into the throne room of God, the first thing that he was exposed to, the first thing that he records is he hears the seraphim around the throne of God going, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. It was as if God was saying, Isaiah, I'm, you and I, we're going to have a relationship. You and I are going to walk together and I am going to speak through you. And you are going to make prophecies, even prophecies about my son. But the thing up front I want you to understand, Isaiah, is I am holy and you're not. And if you read further in Isaiah chapter 6, Isaiah walks into the throne room of God and he says, Woe is me, for I am lost. For I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Silence. Can't talk. Holiness. Pure. Theologians very often attack this attribute of God's holiness by focusing on two aspects. One, his uniqueness. He is totally set apart from his creation. There is no one or no thing like God. He is unique. And of course, the other aspect is his purity. There's no sin. In fact, he can't have sin in his presence. There's no sin in the presence of God. If he sinned or he allowed sin in his presence, he would not be God anymore because God is holy. It's an attribute of God in all that he is. He is without measure. He is holy without measure. He is unique. He is set apart. He's pure. The prophet Habakkuk in praying to God said, You who are of purer eyes than to see evil and cannot look on wrong. He has no weaknesses. He has no frailties. He has no sinful thoughts. He has no sinful tendencies. We can't relate. Woe is me. Woe is me. He is the antithesis 
of sin. He is pure and unique. So that brings us to John chapter 1. Verse 1. In the beginning was the word. If you're not familiar with this passage, the word in here, it's probably capitalized in your translation, is referring to Jesus. He actually gets to that later, but he's using the specific word, which in the Greek, the original Greek is logos. He's using this word for a specific reason. Logos was used in Greek to sometimes refer to a group of letters that meant something, a word. But more often it was used to refer to the sum of everything there is to know about a given subject. So you would get the word on something. That's the comprehensive knowledge about something. And it's interesting that John chose this and clearly if you read through the rest of John chapter 1 he's referring to Jesus Christ but he used logos John the book of John the gospel of John does not include an account of the birth of Christ it doesn't start in Bethlehem because this is John's account of the birth of Christ. And one of the things that he's saying by saying in the beginning, time and space word, is that God has existed forever and Jesus Christ is God and he has existed forever. And he refers to him as the word because Jesus is the full expression of who God is. The word. The book of Hebrews starts out this way. Long ago and many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son. Now the author of Hebrews isn't trying to invalidate the prophets or the patriarchs. He's saying that the fuller, purer, more complete expression of who God is, is in Jesus Christ. It's not to say anything inadequate about the Bible, the Word of God. It's inerrant. It's God-breathed. But Jesus is the Word. He's the full expression of who God is. In fact, in case you don't pick up on that, John's very explicit and direct, right? In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. It does not say that the Word was a God. Jehovah's Witnesses will come to your door and they will try to tell you that. They will show you their New World Translation. And if you look at John 1, 1 in their New World Translation you'll see that definite article put in there, which defies all the, all the laws of Greek grammar, by the way. But they stuck it in there because they do not want to acknowledge that Jesus is God. The Word was God. <clears throat> the full expression of who God is. 
Notice again how God in communicating us to us through the Bible can make our head hurt using human words to try to talk about things that aren't limited to time and space. I'm not the smartest guy in the world. I have a degree in physics and I learned that two things can't occupy the same space at the same time. Right? So what's up with the word was with God and the word was God? Think about it. The best we can describe it is in a concept that we call the Trinity. Now I say concept and I don't want you to take issue with me because I'm a Trinitarian, but the word Trinity is not in the Bible. What is in the Bible in many places is that the Father is God. What's in the Bible in many places is that the Son, Jesus, is God. What's in the Bible in many places is that the Spirit, God the Holy Spirit, is God. But the Son is not the Father and the Son is not the Spirit. The Spirit's not the Son and the Spirit's not the Father. The Father's not the Spirit and the Father's not the Son. And that's the best I can do. And that's with pictures. I don't understand it. I don't completely understand it. I know that's what the Bible says. You can go find charts and tables, and if you you can't, call me. I'll point you to several where everything I just said is backed up about the claims. Jesus claimed to be God over and over again. We'll talk about that a little bit in a minute. And then to bring it all the way back around, It says in verse 1, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And then notice he, we have the pronoun in verse 2. He, referring to Jesus, was in the beginning with God. It's almost if he's foot stomping on the point that he is eternal. He is preexistent. He didn't start in Bethlehem. He didn't start at the creation of the world. He didn't start at conception. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. It's starting to set the stage... That Jesus, God, has all of these attributes of God. And that you cannot separate Jesus from God. Don't try to do it. Don't try to make him just a man. He's fully man and he's fully God. Tempted in every way as we are yet without sin. Don't try to separate Jesus from God. Jesus is God. And so all of these attributes apply to him, including his eternality, including his preexistence, 
He wasn't created. If you don't believe that, read down a little bit further in verse 3. All things were made through him and without him was not anything made that was made. Jesus was not created. He is God. He's eternal God. Bob took us to Exodus chapter 3 last week where Moses is standing in front of the burning bush and God is in the burning bush talking to Moses and he's saying, Moses, it's time for you to stop tending sheep. It's time for you to stop running away and it's time for you to go back to Egypt and stand up to Pharaoh and say, let my people go. And Moses argues with God for a while, but as Moses is starting to capitulate and realize this is going to happen, He says in verse 13 of Exodus chapter 3, If I come to the people of Israel and say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask, What is his name? What shall I say to them? And in verse 14, God says, God said to Moses, I am who I am. Moses wrote that down as four letters. Four Hebrew letters. Sometimes theologians refer to that as the tetragrammaton. Those four letters are incredibly pregnant with meaning. Our English translation translates it, I am who I am. We transliterate those four letters to come up with the word Yahweh and Jehovah from those four letters in the Tetragrammaton. But everybody agrees that it's hard to come up with a distinct translation for what God was trying to convey in those four letters that Moses wrote down. Many Jews consider those four letters to be the unspeakable name of God. If you you have a Hebrew Bible or you go to the bookstore and you look at an English translation uh, of a Torah, you'll see that when they come to this word that's represented by the Tetragrammaton, they'll have capital G, underline, underline. Because they view that as the unspeakable name of God. Very often in your English translation, if you're using ESV, That's the word that gets translated, capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D, Lord, Jehovah God, God Almighty. I have an ESV study Bible, and in the back of that there, they talk about this subject, and they say that theologians and Hebrew scholars have studied this over the years, and here are the four main conclusions they come up with with respect to the meaning of these four letters. Now, I want you to listen to what is said in these four things that are trying to tell us what God was saying in the four letters that Moses wrote down. Number one, that God is self-existent and therefore not dependent on anything else for his own existence. Number two, that God is the creator and sustainer of all that exists. In other words... God holds everything together. Number three, that God is immutable, unchangeable, in his being and character, and thus is not in the process of becoming something different from what he is. And number four, 
that God is eternal in his existence. And the word was with God. And the word was God. Jesus is self-existent. The world was created through him. Right? We just read that. By him all things were made. Through him all things were made. And without him there was nothing made that was made. He's immutable in his being and his character. And he's eternal in his existence. I won't ask for a show of hands, but how many of you did your homework? Philippians chapter 2. Says that Jesus emptied himself and took on the form of a servant. And theologians argue over that word kinu, which is translated emptied. But what it doesn't mean, based on what the rest of the Bible says, is that Jesus gave up his divinity. It's totally God, totally man. He veiled his divine attributes. He voluntarily chose not to show and use his divine attributes all of the time. But he didn't completely veil them, right? We see him walking on water. We see him changing water to wine. We see him calming the storm. We see him walking into locked rooms. We see him disappearing through, through crowds. We see him telling the Pharisees what they're thinking before they ever say a word. He didn't completely veil all of his divine attributes. He had them all. Because he's God. At least six times in the gospel of John. He claimed to be God. Using the tetragrammaton. And as Bob said last week. They picked up stones to stone him for blasphemy. Because the Jews who were talking to him. Knew exactly what he was saying. And they assumed he was just a man. And he said I'm God. I am who I am. He claimed to be God. He received worship without protest. And so that brings us to verse 14 of John chapter 1. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we beheld his glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Think about that. Think about everything that we just said in just a few minutes about God. Think of all that we could possibly say about God. Think of all of those attributes that are both on this page and that could be on dozens of other slides. And then think about, and the Word became flesh. God became flesh and dwelt among us. Think about eternity stepping into time and space. Think about the limitations. Think about being omnipotent. Think about being omnipresent. Think about being omniscient and stepping into time and space and putting up with this stupid vocabulary that we have that's limited to time and space. 
Think of the limitations. Think of the humiliation. Think about this. Look at verse 3 again. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. For six days of creation, he prepared the perfect place for man. For man. And at the end of the sixth day, he created man and he put him in that perfect place. And he walked, I don't know how this happened and we don't have a lot of insight into it in Genesis. He walked among the garden with Adam and Eve. And we screwed it up. And because of sin, death entered into the world. And death passed among all men because all have sinned. You have sinned. I have sinned. And that's the world he stepped into. Out of the glories of heaven. He wasn't around sin. He wasn't around death. He wasn't around shame. He wasn't around anger. He wasn't around bitterness. He wasn't around any of that. And he stepped into a world full of it. A world sick of it. A world that was decaying from it. Look at verses 10 and 11. He was in the world and the world was made through him. Yet the world did not know him. He came to his own and his own people did not receive him. Just think of the rejection alone. I made this place. And you screwed it up. And you act like it's no big thing because I'm here. Here's what Isaiah said in chapter 53. Who has believed what he has heard from us and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him as a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. He had no former majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men. A man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised, and we esteemed him not. God, our creator. God, sinless, spotless, and holy. So back to verse 14. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. Why bother? Really? Why be born in a manger? Why be despised and rejected? 
Why put up with all of the limitations of time and space? Why be despised and rejected by the very people that you created? Why bother? To save you and me. I don't get it. I wouldn't have done it for you. And you probably wouldn't have done it for me. When the angel appeared to Joseph, he said, You shall call the baby's name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. Paul, in writing to Timothy, said, Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. John, writing in 1 John, said, The Father has sent the Son to be the Savior of the world. He came to do something that we absolutely positively needed, but we could not do for ourselves. To accomplish something, listen to me now, to accomplish something that he wants. Remember, God is omnipotent and he is able to do everything that his perfect will desires and he wants to restore that relationship with you. It's that precious to him. You are that precious to him. And so that brings us to the cross. And I'm going to beg you to do something this week. I'm going to beg you not to do something this week. Do not separate the cradle from the cross. Bob brought this up last week when he said... Don't be mistaken that all the incarnation is about is the virgin birth. Don't separate the incarnation from his birth, from his sinless, spotless life within the limitations of time and space, being despised and rejected of men, being a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. Don't leave out the cross. Don't leave out the resurrection. The sum of the incarnation is God with us. Because our sin separates us from him. It separates us from eternal life. Because of our sin, we are condemned to an eternal destiny in hell. And there's no way around that in and of ourselves. I don't get it. I can't explain it. I can just tell you what the Bible says. That the only way to satisfy the wrath of a holy God towards sin is through the sacrifice of the God-man, Jesus We have the only self-sacrificing God. 
I don't get it. I don't understand it. But that's why it happened. And because it's not in and of myself, here's what God says. The only thing I'm going to accept is the blood of a perfect man. The God-man. And that's the only thing I'm going to accept for the forgiveness of sins. And he says, I accept what Jesus did on the cross. Now, here, world, do you want it? Do you want it? You see, the incarnation is an invitation. It's, it's an invitation to receive something. It's an invitation to come to him through Jesus Christ. Don't separate the cradle from the cross as you meditate on the incarnation. Meditate on some of the songs you might hear or you might sing that maybe have become a little bit too familiar. Think in the context of who God is and that the word was God, that Jesus is God, when you hear Christ the Savior is born. Or you sing about the little Lord Jesus. The King of Kings salvation brings. Mild he lay his glory by, born that man no more may die. Born to raise the sons of earth. Born to give them second birth. God with us. God hanging on a cross for your sins and for mine. Here's what I do so I don't forget it. I have a nativity scene. Actually, my wife does. She doesn't let me touch it. <laughs> but every time that goes up, there's a cross behind it. Put a cross with your nativity scene. Because then it tells the story of the incarnation. Because he came to save his people from their sins. <clears throat> he came, he laid his glory by, he veiled his divine attributes so that all of that awesomeness in who he was would be approachable. For most of us, some of you men, maybe not. A little baby is approachable. But when Mary is holding that little baby in her arms, that little baby's holding the universe together. And he says, come unto me, all of you who labor, who are worried, who are living with fear and guilt and shame and doubt and frustration and the burden of sin, come to me and I will give you rest.
Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Is he bigger than what you're dealing with? Is he bigger than your sin? Is he bigger than your shame? Is he bigger than your fear? Is he bigger than your doubt and your worries? Approach him. Approach God. The word was God. He alone is able to forgive your sins. He is alone is able to give you the inexpressible joy that comes with walking in fellowship with the God of the universe. He alone is worthy and he alone is able because he is God. Let's pray. Oh, Father, how dependent upon we, how dependent we are upon God the Holy Spirit to help us even comprehend in the least bit who you are, to comprehend our Savior and his love for us, to contemplate the fact that the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. I pray that God the Holy Spirit will indeed show us your glory. That we will be drawn closer to you. That we will trust you more. That we will trust you with our worries and our fears and our doubts. And that we will trust you with our lives and our eternal destiny. Thank you, Father, for Jesus the God-man, our Savior, and it's in his name I pray. Amen.